Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is General Manager of Audionamics, Ellie McNeil. First of all, live stream revenue from last year really exploded. According to Music Watch Research, it was about $610 million, and there are 115 million people that watch live stream concerts just in the fourth quarter alone. Now, here's the interesting thing. Only 9% paid for the actual live events. Most paid for downloads after the fact. It doesn't matter they're actually paying for the event one way or the other. Now, 66% of those people said they're going to continue to watch live stream, and they really did like it. I think the biggest seller when we look at this was BTS. They sold almost a million tickets for their virtual concerts on October 11th and 12th, 993,000 to be exact. Now, many think this is a brand new format, and Live Nation has gone so far as to say that this is going to be an upgrade for concert tickets. Basically, it will be an add-on to a VIP package where you can go to the concert, and while you're watching your concert, you can watch different camera angles on your phone. I don't know if that will be effective or not, and it might be distracting. Nonetheless, it gives them another reason to charge more. And that's some dough that's actually going back into the artist's pocket. So that's not all bad either. One thing's for sure, it looks like live stream concerts are here to stay. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Don't forget about my Music Mixing Primer and 101 Mixing Tricks programs that will help take your mixes to the next level. Go to bobbyosinskicourses.com to learn more. Now here's something of a shock. Last week it was announced that Isotope and Native Instruments basically merged. And now they've become a brand new company called Music Creation Group. This is funded by private equity firms Francisco Partners and EMH Partners. And if that sounds familiar, it's because we talked about them not that long ago because they originally acquired a big majority stake in Native Instruments way back in October. Now, for now, both of these companies are going to remain independent. So nothing's going to change. But this is a standard roll-up that happens between private equity and venture capitalists and everybody with big money. So what you'll probably end up seeing is both companies shedding a bunch of jobs, shedding some office space, moving in together, and becoming one big happy family. Now, why would this happen? For one thing, Native Instruments, which is very embedded in the DJ market, would like to go more into professional audio. On the other hand, Isotope, which is a standard in professional audio, wants to go more consumer. So each of these have what the other one needs. It's a pretty good symbiotic relationship, or at least on the surface, it seems. Both these companies have been around for a while. Isotope came into being in 2001, Native Instruments in 1996. So they're fairly mature and their audiences are mature. I've been telling you things like this are going to happen, and it's happening at more frequency, and it's actually happening in a way that's shocking because no one saw this one coming. So, Isotope and Native Instruments, our brand new company, Music Creation Group. (music) 
My guest this week is Ellie McNeil, who's the general manager of audio software company Audionamics. Ellie's background includes working as an engineer, product manager, and an instructor at Musicians Institute in Hollywood. Audionamics uses advanced signal processing and artificial intelligence technology to extract specific elements from an audio file, including speech, vocals, drums, and bass. Their top-of-the-line separation tech is reserved for major film studios, television networks, and music labels via their new Audionamics Professional Services Division. During the interview, we spoke about how the Audionamics algorithm works, the legal ramifications of part extraction, some overlooked applications for the software, why so much cutting-edge audio technology comes from Paris, and much more. I spoke with Ellie via Zoom from her office in Burbank. Let's go back to the beginning. Tell me how you got into the business. Well, as you mentioned, I got started in the audio engineering side. So my background is in audio engineering. I have worked in production, post-production, also some assisting in larger studios, editing, all sorts of the run the gambit across the field of audio engineering, all the flavors therein. Uh, And, you know, really what drew me to audio engineering was half about a technical understanding and then the other half of a desire to be involved in the creative process and the more that i've learned about engineering i've really come to see it as another instrument that you learn to play you know engineers they have their tools which shape the sound of these creations just as much as the people playing the instruments or singing the songs Um, and so i have a lot of respect and appreciation for all of the various colors of the rainbow under the audio engineering um, umbrella. And that's really what drew me to the industry. Before you went to MI, you went someplace else, right? I did. Yes. Uh, for undergraduate, I have a economics degree from the university of Chicago. Um, and after I graduated there, I did a year of service for a program called city year, which is through AmeriCorps. And I realized through that program, which was teaching to, um, at risk youth in these underprivileged areas, Um, I realized that you're telling this message of you want to uh, empower them to do anything they want to follow their dreams. And I realized on the other side that my dreams really were not necessarily where that economics degree would directly lead. Um, And so I took the sidestep to come out to LA. I've been out here for over a decade now and learned the, the art and craft of working with sound. And ever since, well, the rest is history. And then you went to MI. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Studied the audio engineering program there with an emphasis in post-production. So it's a nine-month program, very technical focused and uh, essential really to my career because it always takes somebody to take a chance on you in order to get started. And if it weren't for my instructors and the program at MI, I can safely say that I don't know how I would have gotten that start because, you know, when you're not from the city, if you don't have friends or family or somebody that you know that's already involved, it's really difficult to get your one chance and get your toe in that door. Um, And it's a challenging and very competitive uh, industry. So I'm very grateful to the education that I got there and also to my instructors for taking a chance on somebody who didn't know anything at that time. Uh, And yeah, hopefully it's worked out pretty well. (laughs) So then what happened after MI? So after MI, I've, well, I've worked, like I mentioned, kind of all over the place. Um, I was working part-time for EdMI as an instructor, and then I also started working for Audionamics. So this will be my 10th year that I've been working with Audionamics in some capacity, 
although I've only been full-time with them for about two, three years. And prior to that, it was in various degrees of part-time to assist the team. And now I have more of a leadership role uh, as managing the LA team for Audionamics. Um, So the transition coming out of MI, you know, it was, I've been on set doing A2 work. I've taken basically every job that comes your way for the most part as you get going, it's a yes. Um, And then you learn and you learn and as you grow and you get your your, t- your toes really dug into the industry, you learn wh- what are the environments that really suit you, where are you more drawn to, and then you can also, you have more opportunities to choose from you, so you can be a little bit choosier with those opportunities. Um, and that's kind of what it turned out to, and now here I am full-time with Audionamics. I still, as you can see, still do music. I still try to perfect and explore and stay in touch with that creative, curious nature um, of exploration under sound and, and production and all sorts of things. Um, but my my mainstay now is focused on this cool concept of source separation and how to bring that into the industry. Yeah, let's talk about that for a second. So Audionamics is very interesting. I guess I probably saw you at a trade show uh, a few years ago when, when this first came out too. And, and I remember somebody giving me a demo and being very impressed, being able to separate out tracks. Before we get to that though, I have to tell you that when I first got in the industry, it was one of those things that everybody wanted. And it wasn't necessarily the pros, but it was everybody else. And it was always, can you give me this song without the vocal? And every engineer has gone through that, (laughs) I don't know how many times. And of course, there's all sorts of different ways that you can fudge it and some work better than others, but you guys kind of figured it out. Yeah, well... It's, it's been a process, you know, our company has been around since 2003 and it started in France as a purely research-based company that was focused on solving that problem. How do you take this fully mastered mix, a two-track or a mono recording and split it into components? Um, and then we progressed in 2009 when we came out here. And since then we made the jump from advanced math and signal processing to AI and that was a huge increase and improvement in our quality of separation that we've been able to provide. Um, so it's it's been a journey to get where we are here, but yeah, it's it's all about how do you deconstruct the mix in the most authentic way possible, get the highest quality stems. Um, and I hear you, it is something that everybody has wanted. You made a good example of the backing track to sing with or if they're in the studio, they wanna practice, maybe it's a live situation where they wanna practice and they don't have the full band lots of different use cases there Um, but it's also this concept that once something was done finished mastered uh, most of the time you as time what goes on whatever those multi-tracks were or stems they have a tendency to get disorganized or lost or damaged or you know simply you forget about them maybe it's lost in the mix of the engineer and the engineer is probably only going to keep a cache of these for a certain number of years before they are going to clean that out And so it's this final product. It's a final end. You worked hard and then boom, here it is. And what really interests me about the tech that we have is that it it makes you rethink that. No longer is there this, you know, end point in the creative process. Instead, now you can go back in. So let's say you had a live performance and you got um, a stereo mix down from your live performance, but you really liked something that you did in that performance. Well, now you can go back into it, maybe save that vocal or save that guitar solo or whatever it may be and use that component. Um, or in the case of the entertainment industry on the film and TV side, maybe you want to do an Atmos up mix now 
right? You want to take an older film and you want to reimagine it. You want to use the technologies of today to bring up maybe an older track or older creation up to speed and in a new light, essentially. And that's where we come in because in a perfect world, yeah, everybody has their stems. Everybody has their multi-tracks indefinitely, but that's not the world we live in. And we've learned that, um, you know, time and time again, as we've been working with the industry here. I think one of the other problems too, especially back in the analog days, trying to reconstruct the mix again. And, you know, you get a sound the first time and it doesn't sound the same the second time because, you know, in the analog world, there's always something that's a little off. And even no matter how hard you work it, it's really hard to get it back. Yeah, it's that je ne sais quoi, right? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's different now somewhat anyway that we're in the box, but way back when it was sometimes impossible to get the mix back, you know, even if you had uh, everything. Yeah, right. Even if you had it, you add it back together. It doesn't sound the same anymore. Yeah. (laughs) Yep. Are there certain types of program that work better than others? Uh, You mean as far as source content is concerned? Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. I will be the first to say that, you know, we train our algorithms essentially on a library of content. And so we pride ourselves on making the most varied source material in our database as possible. However, there are certain genres, especially music is an easy side here. There are certain genres that kind of fall outside of what one would consider the norm of the use case of an instrument. So for example, if you take a metal vocal and you compare that to the wide range of what a a vocal would be considered um, in all other genres, there's a a pretty big gap there. And so that's where you see if, if an instrument is not being used in the traditional more popular way, that's when you can see the algorithm struggle to identify it because it's not serving the standard function, right? So we're training it with as much information as possible, but I'll tell you metal vocals, that's tough. Um, That's tough to get out. Similarly, if you have a synthesizer, right? And if you think about synthesizer, the number of different sounds that that can be, it's really tough to train this kind of a network to understand all of those different ones and, and, and know that it's just synth um, because it could be a pad it could be a lead it could be anything in, in between and sometimes those actually also mimic acoustic instruments which gets even more complicated if you try to draw a line there so the way that we've handled it is we've started with the most common ones and most desired which is the vocals so that means vocals and backing so instrumental and, and acapella drums which is really successful with the drums and the drumless. And then we've just added bass in the past year. So we now have bass and bassless um, as well. And you can do all four separations. So you can get all four stems, uh, which would be the vocal, the drums, the bass, and then basically what we call the other, which is the remaining music stem. Um, we are working on adding more instruments now. Um, and I, you can probably guess from this that what instruments are going to be next have to be a little bit more defined. Because if you just say keys or... Piano. Piano, okay, if it's going to sound like an actual acoustic piano, great. If it's keys as general, that's a whole different story. And similarly with guitar, there's a very big difference between an acoustic guitar um, and the world of guitar that involves electric guitar, processing, effects, etc. And that's where things get more of a challenge for us. It's all based on, I guess, the library than the trains, the algorithm, right? That's exactly it. Yeah, the power of the tech comes from the quality of our library and the way that it's set up, the way that the network is set up. So it'll get smarter over time. Exactly. That's very cool. One of the things that we've always struggled with this 
you know, always, 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 uh, after the fact, trying to make things just a little bit different. You know, I can remember doing a mix, for instance, and it's completely finished, and everybody signs off on it, and they love it. And I get a call from the lead singer, and he says, can you go back and can you raise the hi-hat a half a dB during the chorus? I said, are, are you going to hear this? And even if it's a DB, are you still going to hear it? And are you going to forget about this next week, you know, when you play it back? But it cost X number of thousands of dollars. I don't know what it was to go back and do this mix just to appease somebody for something like that. So it would be wonderful, in fact, if it could be that defined mm-hmm. where you can dig into the dirt like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are, you know, that's that's the goal, right? We take it one step at a time, and we really are focused on just delivering the best, doing what we're doing to the best of the ability. We're not going to put something out there that isn't able to deliver on what we say it is. And as a consequence, we know we, we, we're a small team. There's about 20 of us total worldwide. We've got the R&D team still in Paris. We've got our marketing, sales, and audio engineers that work on this content um, with the actual um, major studios and labels here in L.A., um, and together, we, we've just decided that the best way to do this is to focus, to focus on doing the one thing right, and then expand from that baseline, basically. But I hear you. I, I dream of the, the day of automated, you know, you put a song in there, and not only do you get a stem out for drums, but it breaks it out into the kick and the snare and all of those individual components to play with, sample, and all sorts of things that can come out of that. That being said, it opens up a can of legal worms as well. Yes, and I'm glad you brought that up. Um, because it's one of the things that we are very mindful of here at Audionamics. So we do offer direct-to-consumer products. However, they are kind of on that DIY level because they don't solve that that exact concern, which is if you want to sample for your own, if you want to be at home deconstructing mixes, learning about production, if you want to sing or learn to play guitar, or learn to play drums at home, great. However, if you want to go ahead and release something, especially commercially, but even socially, if you're going to put something out there that you don't have the rights secured to, that's not going to be covered. Our our software just splits it up. It doesn't give you the right to share that commercially. And so we have a totally separate division called the Professional Services Division. And that's actually the very first one that we established here in LA. That's the one that started in 2009. And it is reserved exclusively for rights holders. Um, and it also offers all of our best tech. So the direct to consumer that anybody can go on our site and grab and subscribe to, it's a couple generations behind the best stuff that we have. And we are dedicated to providing that directly with the, the different players in the industry because we want to be mindful of not creating more issues for this or promoting um, any sort of illegal uses of content. Well, give me an idea, the users of that tech, of your professional services. Yeah, absolutely. I can give you a couple of examples of things that we've done. So um, some really fun projects that we did, especially now that we're all at home during the pandemic, um, are live film concerts. So you've probably seen these um, where they take a beloved film with a great score. They put it on stage, even at the Hollywood Bowl. They bring in the orchestra. And in order to do that, you have to mute the music from the film right? Uh, Otherwise, you're doubling up. It's creating all sorts of things. So great. That's where we've come in several times with classic films. We've done North by Northwest live. We've done West Side Story live. We've done Blade Runner, which did a European tour. Um, And just going in and removing the music, leaving the dialogue and effects intact. So you still get that 
full soundtrack experience, but live. So it's very, that's a very cool use case. Um, some other ones that are really interesting, especially today with a lot of the blow up in streaming content. Well, streaming wasn't necessarily thought of when they had the music licenses secured for a lot of the shows in the 90s and 2000s. Um, you know, those were broadcast licenses that were covering a specific use case. Um, and as you well know, a lot of those songs that they got placed on a big show, 90210, Charmed, um, Baywatch, that catapulted that song to success. It was kind of the way that you broke out into the industry for, for a lot of really cool artists. Uh, and as a consequence, now if they were to take those um, titles and bring them to a streaming service or do a re-release that is not under the umbrella of broadcast, they need to figure out how to handle those music licenses. And now these very popular songs are also complicated to license and extremely expensive to relicense. So we've gone in and we do a music removal service where we have actually removed certain songs from, specifically we did Baywatch. They had a global HD re-release uh, and we removed like 600 different clips of songs and then they replaced them with new songs, um, other songs that were easier for them to license. So when you watch that HD re-release, you have the exact same original performance, um, but you actually hear slightly different songs in certain scenes that were more difficult to get those music um licenses secured and just to give you a context it's extremely expensive so expensive that when they brought us in it was a is this project going to go or not because if we can't figure out had an alternative we are not going to be able to afford to do this release and that's for a huge show so that's a another pretty interesting case and then in the music domain working with the labels um it's a lot of virtual duets and also revamping you can imagine for some of the older songs how fun it would be to take a mono recording and then bring it up into the modern appreciation with all of the cool techniques that we have now to mix and master that weren't available. Um, everything ranging from the Edith Piaf um, movie, the, the biopic, La Vie en Rose, we did a lot of um, stem separation for that so that they could make it into a 5-1 surround experience that was still her original vocal performance. Um, we've done Barry Manilow's My Dream Duets album. I think we did seven or eight of the tracks on that one where he wanted to do duets, but most of the people that he wanted to do duets with are unfortunately no longer with us. So we isolated their original performances. And then he, who is a wonderful arranger, came in and rearranged uh, the song, added his components, sung with them. And it was fully virtual um, and facilitated by this technology. So you know, as you can tell, it kind of goes from all over the place. And it's one of those things where um, I'm always interested to hear how our users are finding uses for this tech, because it's really, it's it kind of just makes you rethink and unlock a whole world of possibilities as far as what you can do. That's really cool. Yeah, I can understand how that could save a lot of money, you know, especially for, you know, Baywatch or something like that, where... Let's face it, music licensing can get really expensive really fast, and, and that's a good way out for them. And, it, and it's complicated, too. There's a lot of people involved when you think about a song, especially a song that's gone through, you know, a, a popular song in which you have the publishing side. Maybe you've got several songwriters. Maybe you've also got the label. And you have to get everybody involved and on the same page to, um, to get that thing licensed. And I'm personally very interested to see how the industry from a tech side is going to adapt to that to make it a simpler process. Because um, I think, you know, for our Extract Stems users and for the the world of fans in, in a whole, they would love to be able to 
you know, when they want to remix, when they want to sample, when they want to sing a karaoke song, they do that because they love this, these, these creations, not because they want to create some kind of bootleg that, that cuts these people out. Um, but unfortunately, it's a real challenge to figure out how to bridge that gap. How does somebody like me at home here, you know, without a huge amount of money or connections, how do I go ahead and license this little sample um, and put that video out there so that those people can, can get that money? So I think, you know, we're going to see that infrastructure develop over the next couple of years. Um, and there's, it's going to probably be a specific platform, a new way of thinking about this. Uh, and there's a lot of really cool stuff happening in the music tech space to solve these these dilemmas. You talked about movies before and the fact that you'd remove the music, but you leave the dialogue and the effects. Yeah. The dialogue I can understand that's uh, you know akin to a vocal, but the effects might be different because it's the same thing as a synthesizer. There's so many different ones. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So with our music removal service in particular, it's a different tech. Um, it's actually a patented technology that we've had for quite some time. I think it got patented around 2011. It's called KSR, known source removal. So it's a slightly different technology and it's essentially a fingerprinting type where if you feed it in a, a portion of a song and then you give it the full mix, it will find that song within the full mix and remove it. And as a consequence, it's not relying on the same kind of AI-based machine learning database to figure out what is an effect. It just gets the music and pulls that out. So it's a slightly different process and that's how it, it is able to do that. That being said, um, we do offer services in which we break it down um, into all of the stems. So you get the dialogue on one stem, the music on the other, and the effects on the third. And typically the way we will do that is we'll do our music removal process and then we'll do our dialogue isolation, MI, and then we wind up with the three. So it's just sort of a, a compiling a few of them and stacking them on top of each other to get the end result. You know, you mentioned before about the company originating in Paris and what I find interesting with that is there's so much audio research being done in Paris. Whenever there's something that's cutting edge, it seems to come out of there. Do you know why, you know, that you're connected intimately with that? I can tell you that in Paris, there is basically, I would say, the top school when it comes to technical research in the audio field that is based in Paris. And so a lot of our researchers have been scouted directly from that program. And I believe that similarly, those same bright minds are being scattered across the world into all of these music, uh, these audio technology companies. Um, they're ex it's, it's a really great school. And I think it's kind of, it's like the Harvard of, uh, of audio research is how I would call it. Mm. Okay. <laughs> One thing I didn't know, I was looking at the website and I saw instant dialogue cleaner and I thought to myself, this is something I have to have because it's something that I deal with all the time with podcasts, obviously. Your yeah. audio is great, but <laughs> I'm always shocked at the audio that I get from people that should know better. You know, you, you get a famous producer or engineer and they're in their kitchen and everything's bouncing all over the place. <laughs> So I'm yes. frequently doing a lot of post-production work and I'm looking at that and I'm thinking, oh, this looks like it's perfect. Yeah, I love the IDC plugin. Um, it's sort of like a light version of our dialogue isolation tech. Um, we centered it around usability. So it's really easy. It's just that one dial and it works in relatively real time. Everything else that we have, it is based on cloud-based processing. It uses the AI that needs the GPU servers. It's a whole, it's a whole downtime process. But with this, it was something that works immediately 
And it works in basically any other scenario when it comes to what the interference is, because instead of it focusing on what the noise profile is and removing that, which is what a traditional denoiser would do, it instead is actually isolating the dialogue um, on its own. And it does so with 35 milliseconds of latency. So it's, you know, pretty fast. You know, you turn that thing, if you need it, if you're in a spot where you need that done fast, you just turn it down. And I personally have used it actually on when I've been mixing some podcasts because um, there was one podcast in, in particular called the Mom Forum in which um, the host will travel to meet with moms in in their homes to speak with them. And she used a Yeti mic, you know, so it's, you can already guess that it's going to capture just about everything. It's a single source for both of them talking, plus whatever kids are in the background and cars are going and whatever reverberations. And what I loved about IDC is you just take it down about 6 dB and it makes the whole space feel like it's more of a studio controlled environment and really just breaks down the distractions of a lot of those interference, those kind of temporal interferences. If it's a, you know, a honking of a horn or a kid banging on something, all that stuff gets brought down and the voice is the thing that's, that's basically preserved. Yeah. I was really impressed with the demo. It's short, but nonetheless, it was like, okay, it de-reverbs, it uh, it's taking away the noise and hum and there's a lot of different and the environment it was pretty impressive like i say in order for me to do something similar to that i'd be using three or four different plugins to get close to it well, we're gonna have to you get know, you uh on idc we're gonna i'm gonna send you over one so you can check it out and i'd love to hear what you think about oh, it Oh, that'd be great and i'll put it to good use believe me last question ellie and thank you so much for your time What's the best piece of business advice that you've learned along the way or maybe somebody imparted to you? When it comes to business, and I would say in life, maybe both, you want to listen first before you start trying to do any sort of sale. Let me put it that way. Whether it be selling a product or yourself in an interview, you know, environment, listening to first so that you can understand where people are coming from and what is going to be not only relevant, but resonate and put put yourself in that shoe where you're thinking about their perspective really goes a long way um, in all different business environments and negotiations. So that's kind of, I'd say, one of them. Um, and maybe the other thing is to have confidence because this world of technology is evolving so quickly that it's impossible to think that you're ever going to be on top of everything that's going on and to pretend like you are, um, you know, with the level of expertise that you pretend to have, or um, I don't know, it just kind of blocks you out from this world of all the possibilities and the curiosity and the desire to know more that is so important to sustain a career in technology. And also I would say in the music business in general, because you really need to kind of keep that spark and and um, fan it throughout throughout the career to keep going and be successful. So those would be my two pieces of advice. You can find out more about Ellie and Audionamics at audionamics.com. That's audionamics, A-U-D-I-O-M-I-X, all one word, dot com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. To listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. 
at bobbyosinski.com and bobbyowinnercircle.com. You'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Oh, 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 oh